toss that rusty old grill into the river and set the Barca lounger on fire. You have now entered the Dadward Spiral. Uh, my name is Aaron Pruner, for those of you who are completely clueless and just tuning in for the very first time. My co-host Eddie is out this week, so apologies to Eddie. Um, you can find me at Aaron Flux on Twitter, Aaron W. Pruner on Facebook and Instagram, and at Dadward Spiral, which is this show that you are tuning into. And thanks to Dragon Wagon Radio for giving us a home. This started off as just an idea. I, I, I honestly, I was spitballing this show as an idea on Twitter like three months ago. And Dax Shepard, of all people, uh, I pitched it like, well, I should have Dax Shepard on because, you know, he and I have similar stories about becoming a dad late, later than a lot of other people. And he's like, I'm there. And it was that tweet that made me start this. And now I can't get a hold of Dax Shepard. So... It's now been like, it's now this like ongoing mission. Like every week I'm going to get everyone I love talking to. And I'm just going to keep like emailing his publicist saying, hey, this is really a legit show. And it would not have actually happened if it wasn't for his tweet back to me saying it was a good idea. I hope it's a good idea, man. Um, so for those of you just tuning in who don't really know, this is not your typical dad podcast. I'm not here to talk about sports or fishing, although I'm totally down for my guests to talk about it. I didn't have a dad or a grandfather or a great grandfather or an uncle or any sort of semblance of a father figure growing up. And I was, I was raised to hate my father and that sort of transferred into this idea of never wanting to be a dad. The idea scared me and my wife got pregnant and <laughs> the dad word spiral commenced. I, I, my anxiety lasted almost a good year and a half. And uh, I, I mean, I can get into that story a bit later, but my wife was in labor for four days, which was a whole other experience entirely. And she wanted to go with a uh, hypnobirthing. So like no medicine and hypnosis instead. We went to classes. I told her, you know, you have all of my support. That's not something I would do. And then <laughs> as soon as we got in the hospital, epidural, <laughs> like it all went differently, but uh, I'm getting off track here. So I said, Eddie is not with me this week, but uh, a man who I consider a friend who started off as just an interview subject of mine at my previous job has joined me in his place. And I was going to have him on anyways, at least invite him if Eddie was here. His name is Kevin Rom, And uh, I mean... <laughs> So the first time I ever spoke to Kevin, I was covering a show called Lethal Weapon at a website that no longer exists named Zap to it, which is, I guess, kind of poetic given that Lethal Weapon is a TV show that no longer exists and people's memories fade really quickly when it comes to media or online anything. Um, and <laughs> I thought, OK, this is a this is a funny guy. And I've I saw his work on Bates Motel and Mad Men. And then we hung out at a party. I'm like, dude, this guy's fucking weird. I, he's like on my level. This is, and it was one of the better parties I had ever uh, gone to. Uh, it was a television critics association thing. And um, yeah, we're social media friends. And Kevin, welcome to whatever the hell this is. Was that the, was that the one at, uh, at, at the Soho house? It was the one at a very, very tall building in hollywood or la yeah, that's, that's soho that's soho house it's so disorienting because you get on the elevator and you don't realize you're going to get off on like the hundredth floor yeah you 
just go outside and suddenly you're just above everything else. And my vertigo really kicked in the first time I was there. But those things are always so weird because they're, they're, they're awful because you have the people on TV who are promoting their shows on one side of the room and all of like the attic people who <laughs> the majority <laughs> of my peers, I call them attic people because no offense, but you see they're, they're kind of schlubby and they don't really have um, the, the, the drive to, I guess, socialize at these events. And usually these events happen after like 12 hour days in a ballroom covering right. show after show after show. So I'm not saying my peers are a bunch of slobs, but there is this disconnect where they seem to be, and I'm guilty of it too, go into these parties to get the free food and free alcohol and That's swag. And, but, but right. And, but it's, I've always, Every time I'm going to those things and I go up and I actually talk to people on shows who I've interviewed before, I get this weird sort of, why are you over here? Sort of uh, reaction. Like it's a, like, <laughs> like it's a school dance and all the boys are on one side and the girls are on the other and the chaperones are like keeping them apart. It's this weird dynamic and it happens every time. But I hung out with you at this party and it was like, oh, this actually kind of feels like a party. And that was one of the things that I really glommed onto is that you didn't really feel like the stereotypical actor that you meet in this city. And I guess that's the first thing I want to talk to you about. Hmm. You don't live in LA. I don't, not anymore. We moved, uh, my wife and I moved to Sacramento seven years ago now. Seven years. Yeah. It's been that long. I was living, I was living in Sacramento when I was doing lethal weapon. Yes. Right. You yeah. said that. And you said they flew you down like every week and put you in a hotel or whatever. They didn't fly me anywhere. <laughs> they, they flew me down for the pilot. Um, oh. but then once the shows picked up, it's my dime. So I got an apartment in LA and I would fly, took the Southwest Airbus, you know, once a week, I'd go back and forth at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. That, oh. <laughs> well, it's not bad. Honestly, look, it's better than going to New York back and forth from Sacramento. Right, so there's, yeah. there's one direct flight and it's a red eye. Um, and it's jet blue without mint. So you're, you know, crammed in the back of the plane and, you know. Uh, but the Southwest, I mean, it's, it's there were, I have friends that lived in like Long Beach and then we'd leave work at the same time on Friday at five and I would get to Sacramento before they would get home. Well, yeah. So it's not, <laughs> it's not that bad. You know what I mean? Like the, right. the only downside was... Uh, you know, if they changed my schedule and I had to, you know, jump on the last flight out to be there in the morning or something. But otherwise, it's it's a pleasant problem to have, trust me. Well, yeah, I guess the other reason you left L.A. is because it's L.A. There's a lot of people leaving. No, actually, I I, I was scared to leave L.A. I liked L.A. I had found, uh, I, had, I loved my house. I loved where I lived. I had good friends. Um, I had created, you know, a, a, a friend family there that I'm really still very close to with. And um, we moved simply because my wife has a real job and her job was going to be in Sacramento. Yeah, I, I, if you're cool with talking about that, sure. I do want to talk about that later. But um, I, because I, I, I write about the entertainment industry and I, I guess I could still consider myself an actor, even though I got the ring light and the backdrop and I got Perfect. emails from my agents and my managers saying, you know, get ready for self tapes. And I'm like, I've been ready. Nothing has happened. Um, if it makes you feel any better. I've had three. It, uh, come on, man. I mean, yeah, I, I guess. Th but three. I just in read a news piece. Six months. 
You're going to be on months. an HBO Max show or something. I mean, you, <laughs> come on, look at you. Look at you and look at me. Look at you. I, I look like the before picture of what Paul Giamatti is now. I, I, when I used to get out on auditions, I was the quote unquote Steve Buscemi type. Like that is what it would say oh on God. breakdowns. Steve Buscemi type. You're like, and I got I, this one. I got this. I, I got ended this. up interviewing him at TCA and I pretty much said, well, I guess I have to say this. It's nice to finally meet you, dad. And he gave me a hug <laughs> and it was so strange. But I guess, um, so leaving LA, does that, how does that work in your mind being I mean, you're not that far away, but you're disconnected enough from yeah. this environment. Does that help you get any clarity on I love acting? It. I love it. Yeah, I love it. It so doesn't matter. Like all of the all of the BS that surrounds the industry, all the parties and all the who's seen where and paparazzi and all that. I mean, like I was never affected by any of that stuff, but just being away from it, you realize how none of that stuff matters. None right. of that stuff matters. All that matters is is getting the job and doing the work. And so when I come down to work, I'm there to work. And so I show up prepared and I'm like, I wanna be done because I wanna get on the last flight. I wanna go home, I wanna see my family. So shut up, know your lines, <laughs> hit your mark, and let's do this, let's have fun. I wanna have fun in the process, don't get me wrong. I love to do, I love what I do, but, and I love to play on set, but like, I also wanna go home. My family's somewhere else, so. Right, and that's what I wanted to talk about because I don't know, you know, growing up, my mom tried to get me into acting when I was a kid. And there was a company called Faces International back when I think 1989, that was this uh, presented themselves as this big like actors management company. And if you sign up with them, they will get you headshots and an agent and all that this. You had stuff. to pay for through them. Yes. And they mm. ended up uh, going out of business and being sued for a lot of money for exploiting kids and their families because they up front it was some like thousands of dollars we would have had to spend to be to yeah. join and you know growing up here i'm from la growing up here it's always been constantly about entertainment tv movies acting and i started theater at a very young age it was actually uh but i didn't want to but i was the kid in class that was running lines with all the kids auditioning to be ebenezer scrooge for a christmas carol Mm -hmm. And I was the only one in class who knew all the lines. <laughs> no one knew the lines right, but I had to memorize the lines because I was reading it with everyone. And even back then, I was the little grumpy Jewish kid playing the little grumpy Ebenezer. Scro I played Scrooge three different times at three different schools for three different productions That's of A Christmas Carol. That's but amazing. it was it was then that I realized it was something I loved to do. And thankfully, my mom was supportive of it. But I'm curious, just to start, where when did you know that... This was it. See, I see. I had the opposite. I mean, they're, they're, I loved TV. I grew up. I mean, I was raised by television practically. Um, I wa watching Mash and watching you know reruns of old shows. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that was never an option growing up in Louisiana. That at the time, no one thought I'm going to be an actor. So that was never a thought in my head. Um, my intent was just to do better than my mom did, and so I thought I have to be a lawyer. I can argue. My grandmother told, told me I could argue with the signpost. So I thought, well, I can do that. I can be a lawyer. And so that was my intent. It wasn't, I did a play and I did plays in high school, um, kind of forced into one my freshman year and then did one my sophomore year. And then I moved to this school in East Texas my junior year and they had a huge theater program. And so I kind of got thrown into that. Um, 
because they didn't have debate, they had theater. So I did that for two years and we won awards and stuff, but I still, it never occurred to me to, to think of this as a career option. So it wasn't until I was in college and um, Aaron Eckhart was a year ahead of me. Oh, and, uh, He was getting work. He wasn't an actor yet. He was in the film program, but he would get oh, work Oh, I know, as an us actor. Aaron's week. Yeah, you, 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 know, you model a lot. Yeah, yeah, right. You're more of a hand model though, I hear. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that and like dish d- d- detergent yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. sure so, totally. okay. i've Sorry. actually been told that my hands are <laughs> super soft for a man my age but i digress <laughs> i'm actually being serious but it's okay i haven't done one day of hard labor in my life <laughs> anyway long story short aaron eckhart was getting he was he was getting jobs as like the helicopter pilot he was a model and he was getting jobs from the modeling agency as an actor for the tv movie the week that was in town or the there were two tv shows that shot in salt lake and um and i and and i was studying theater that was what i was doing at that point in college and thought well if if aaron can get work i can get work so i went and got his agent um in salt lake and started booking started making money doing it and then it was like oh maybe i should do television because my intent at that point was to go to college and do or go to grad school to do theater right um and uh, at that point, I was like, well, I'm already getting paid. Um, L.A. is just a couple hours that way. So I'm done with school. <laughs> let's, let's go to L.A. Right, right. You know, I, I don't know if I'm reaching here or not. You said that you didn't want to, that you were thinking of following in your mom's footsteps. Was your dad around? No, I, 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 we have that in common. I didn't, I had, I had, my dad died when I was really young. I was like oh, wow. 18, 16 months old when my dad died. Um, so I didn't have the father figure either. Um and both my grandfathers died before I was 15. So like wow. I had, I hadn't, I was like you, I had no male role model. And there were guys from church that would show up periodically. And I had a step, I had two stepdads for one for a very short period of time that I barely remember and one for a couple of years. Um, but these guys from church would show up and try to be some of them. Well, some of them not so well, try to be a, a role model. There was one guy that really uh, was a good example to me. Um, for a couple of years in high school that I, I still, I still think finally of, but, um, and Cliff Daniels, but otherwise I was like, you, I, I, I was figuring, so by when I, when I became a dad, I was like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Like I have, I don't know how to do, I literally don't know how to do this. I have no example, like good or bad. Like I don't have anyone look, okay, I can't do that. That sucks. Right. Or, or I, oh, that was a good thing. Or, you know, so it, it was, I had the same anxiety you had. I always, the difference between us is I always wanted to be a dad. I love kids. I love playing with kids. I was the fun uncle, <laughs> uh, the funkle. And um, I, I love, I, I just, I love imagination and playing those games with kids and seeing where their minds will take them and, you know, giving them a hard time. I, I love kids, but when it came to having one myself, I was, I still am terrified. I, I, I'm constantly like, how am I screwing her up? You know, uh, well, like there's, there's, there's the therapy fund and the college fund. Um, <laughs> oh God, I should, uh, I should write that down. I, <laughs> we have not had that conversation. My daughter is technically Jewish, kind of, yeah. maybe a little bit. Um, no, I, I forgot we had that conversation. And yeah. that's, that's the reason why I wanted to do this show is because, you know, looking around online, I, I've dabbled in writing about parenting stuff since starting this myself. And like I had, I'm a big horror movie guy. My daughter is born and suddenly for a good year and a half, I couldn't watch any horror movies or even The Walking Dead, which I had to cover for work. 
I got so affected by a scene where they were using a baby mm, mm. as a lure for the zombies. And I got super pissed off. And, and I, I remember having to take a step back going, wait, this is new. Why am I feeling this way? And it's, it's those types of things that I've been exploring, but I mean, I didn't know anything about my dad aside from the fact that he was a deadbeat alcoholic. And I've learned things now that I am a father that he was almost a member of the hell's angels in the seventies that oh, he shit. did porn for the hell's angels, like biker snuff adult movie. I found him on Like I found a video. It's yeah. I went down a dark. Wow. He um, never graduated high school, went to prison for meth. When my mom gave birth to me, he didn't show up to the hospital at all. Oh, and no. only recently I found out that he never told my mother he loved her. And I'm like, why did you? And that's that's part of this is because my grandfather was killed by a palm tree falling on the car on my grandmother's birthday in 1973. My if mom, you, if that wasn't a script, you'd be like, that's that's too much. Let's 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 pull that back a little. Well, bit. <laughs> Pat Boone was was like 17 cars back. They always love to tell me this story. Um, it was over on Sherman Way near Sepulveda, where all the palm trees are. It was a windy yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. And my grandfather, who was a milkman for Carnation in the 60s and 70s, was driving my grandmother to a surprise birthday party. And a palm tree fell over and landed on the car, killed him, put her in the hospital for six months. The reason I'm sharing that is because I, I point to that as basically the reason why I'm here. Hmm. Because I don't think my mother would have gone on the steps she, you know, gone on the road she went on and met my father otherwise or made ah, the decision ah. to marry him because he was so not right for her. Is and he still so, around? Uh, he died in 2006. Oh, wow. I found out after the fact that he was married five times and I have half brothers and half sisters all around the country. Wow. It's crazy. And he wow. was colorblind and I can't tell the difference meaning between, meaning he dated black people and white people or no he meaning literally, he, he was, literally couldn't see blue literally and... <laughs> couldn't see any colors <laughs> and i found out about 10 years ago because i would always have these arguments with people of saying you know that's not dark blue that's black or that's not uh turquoise that's seafoam green i am slightly colorblind and having that conversation with my mom she just randomly was like oh yeah your dad was colorblind i'm like you Not didn't amazing. think to tell me this. These like little things that I have learned over the years kind of fed into this. My dad became this this uh, sort of legend in my head of like what not to do mm. and kind of a monster in a way with all these bad things I've heard. And, you know, I was raised constantly. My grandmother and mom raised me and they would always tell me you were the best thing that happened from that marriage, which is mm. great. But Sweet. then it's like it also just also puts a little pressure on you, but it also puts the thought in my head of that marriage doesn't isn't a good thing. And yeah, yeah. fatherhood is, uh, you know, if my grandfather didn't make it and my dad didn't make it. And then I found out last year that my, the thing that kills you. If, right. I found out last year that my great grandfather was in the Holocaust, you know, and my just, uncle, found, that out. just found that out. I just found that out. My grandmother never really talked about her dad. And so that was my that mom generation though. That that generation didn't talk about stuff. No. And so like I did a press uh, day for the TV show Hunters that's mm -hmm. on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. And I talked with Nikki this Toscano. guy. 
He, right. Yeah. I talked with a guy that created the story. This is young guy named David Weil. And he, he and I bonded on that whole idea of legacy and, and how trauma can be handed down from generation to generation. And here I am now as a father, not all I know is in my head, this concept of what not to do, like, mm-hmm. don't go to jail. Don't yeah. sell meth crystal meth don't i think i think those are those are good starting points don't do porn for the hell's angels you know i mean i would you could stop the porn <laughs> but especially for the hell's angels don't and, do it and that's another thing when i learned about that i was driving with my mom in the car and i brought it up to her and i'm like mom did uh, you know <laughs> i said to her so a guy reached out to me on instagram who says he was my father's brother and she said oh you mean mike and i said yeah oh my god and he said my father used to do adult movies in the 70s. And I'm driving <laughs> and the light turns green. Hopefully not on Sepulveda with a palm tree. No, 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 no. I'm driving, light turns green. And I look over and she's looking out the window and she goes, oh yeah, I haven't thought about that in quite some oh time. God. I'm just like, you didn't think at all that you wanted to share that info with me? <laughs> this is good backstory. Give me the information. It's, and this was, initially I was gonna write a memoir. And this turned into a podcast, which is probably going to be helping me figure out what the hell this memoir is going to be about. But my daughter, I find out my wife's pregnant and I go on, I tailspin. I, I, I lost like 10 pounds, anxiety, not sleeping. And I was constantly thinking of, okay, well, um, is there this this seed, this like darkness inside of me that's going to show itself? And is that going to be what my dad, you know, am I going to basically walk the steps he walked in raising this kid? Am I cursed? Like all these things are going through my head and welcome to the dadward spiral. Wow. That's that's wow. pretty much why we're here, because I I never cared about fatherhood. I never really was into any of that. And. I was jealous of my my friends who were kids who had dads around that I just didn't want to know about it. And now every day it's all I think about. Mm-hmm. So th- since I just unloaded all that on you, um, I, I'm wondering if you go if you can go a bit into your experience of how how becoming a father has I guess changed your perspective on life or even your perspective on, on the work that you're doing, because well, that's, okay. I'll, I'll tell you how it started. So my wife also had a, not a four days, but she had a day and a half of labor. It was like was it 20 hours. Was it hypnobirthing? No, we have hell no. We have script. my wife. I had no, a script oh, of shit. I had to, we, we had her. a birth, we had a birth plan. I'm doing air quotes. We had a birth mm-hmm. plan, but I was like, I don't care. Just make the kid get the kid out healthy and make sure my wife's okay. That's that, that's my birth plan. Everybody survives. That's, that's my birth good, plan. That's a good plan. So, uh, but part of the birth plan was I was going to cut the umbilical cord. So she ends in labor for like 20 something hours, 30 hours or something like that. And um, we had been watching a lot of, we had never seen the wire all the way through. So we had, we're finishing the wire and I was watching the walking dead. <laughs> okay. So, so the sh- my daughter gets stuck in the yeah. birth canal and uh and okay we'll go we'll go to step back so my wife is gonna do it uh she wants to do it natural oh with that without but she then she's like you know what i need an epidural give me an epidural give me give me the give me the drugs so they had this this med student puts in the epidural and it put the, if it goes in wrong half your body gets all the medication the other half doesn't yeah. so she looks like a paralysis victim like she's oh, had a stroke God. so half of her face is drooping like this 
And she looks at me, she goes, don't be concerned, <laughs> but I don't think I can breathe if I lie down on my own. And I'm like, are you, and she's a doctor, by the way. So don't if, be she, concerned. <laughs> if she's, if she's worried about it, there's a real issue. Right. So then we're, I'm, so this goes on for like four hours. They have to turn it off, turn it on, turn it off, turn it on. Cause if it gets too much, she yeah. can't control her diaphragm and breathe. And half of her face is drooping. And I'm like, Oh my God. So finally my daughter gets stuck. And then they go, the docs, the doctor's like, okay, look, we have to cut you. It's like, you know, Rocky Mick's going to cut him so he can finish the fight. And, um, and they pull my daughter out and she had aspirated merconium, which is the really like tarish uh, stool the kid first has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and if it gets in their lungs, it could be a really bad thing. So like the doctor's like, okay, she's coming out now, get ready. And I'm like, and there, there's a team of people waiting on the other across the room and they're waiting with the little thing, suckers to go in her nose to pull all the stuff out of her lungs and stuff. And I, they want me to cut the umbilical cord. I'm like, I, I'm good. I just, and I'm like trying to cut it and I miss and I cut and cut half. And I'm like, finally, take the kid, save the kid. And then I'm torn. I'm standing there now. I'm holding my wife's hand and they're taking my daughter away. And I looked at my wife and she's like, I'm fine. Go to her. So I go over there and I, there was this split second where time froze. Like in the movie, it would go to slow-mo. And as they're taking my daughter over to the little heating uh, units where they warm the kid, the warmer, the baby warmer, um, and they're gonna do all the stuff to make sure she's okay. Uh, everything slowed down and I clocked everyone in the room. And there were like eight or nine people in the room and, and figured out how I could kill them if I had to get her out of that room. Yeah. And I've never, I am not, I'm, I've not been in fights. You, I'm not you, a fighter. You, you Jason borned them. You I like, Jason yeah. borned the shit out of that room. And I was like, <laughs> I will take that pan. I will hit yeah. that guy over the head. That guy gets a scalpel. I'll you know what that means? In that moment, you became a father. Oh my God. And, and it's been like that, like it's constant, like, you know, the other thing, it's constant fear and joy and rage. And it's like all of the emotions. Uh, and they, and I go through them almost every day. All of them. So do I, but I mean, that's just my life in general. But now <laughs> it's, it's, now it's, you know, lack of sleep and constantly afraid that, you know, Civil war is about to happen outside. Yeah, my yeah that's true. That too. Uh, are we sharing birth stories? Because I mean, that sounds, I wasn't allowed to cut the umbilical cord. Uh, they didn't trust you with the knife? That's uh, objects, people or? were making decisions while I was frantically pacing. So like I said, it was four days and oh, Jesus, we were going with Kaiser and my wife was not dealing well with the people at Kaiser. And uh, so we had taken all these did classes. You a, did you have a doula? Yes, oh, we did. Thankfully, um, we had gone with all these classes, learned about the human body and the process of pregnancy. And like we actually did hypnosis stuff, which I was surprised certain techniques we used worked. Uh, we're in this room with a few other people and I put my wife out and then inflicted harm on her that she did not feel because of certain uh, cues, certain things in the script I was reading. And I'm like, OK, I guess this kind of works but um first thing they don't tell you in the movies is that when your water breaks you don't have to go to the uh hospital right then right and away yeah my wife didn't tell me her water broke when we were driving in the car uh and <laughs> i got off the freeway and hit a bump and she was like oh oh um and i you know i had a feeling but she didn't want to go back to the hospital 
right away because we were we had just left and there was this nurse there who was just super forceful and not nice and i guess um, ratchet it could have been (laughs) uh you learn that your body goes into defense mode and um even when you're you know your water breaks or whatever and you dilate your body goes into defense mode if you feel like you're in danger around certain people so we came home and it was a good 12 hours from that point where we're just at home waiting until the last possible second, which is what the hypnosis class would tell you. And at like four o'clock in the morning, we were supposed to go back to Kaiser at 8 a.m. the next day that if, you know, if she wasn't far enough along, they were going to induce mm-hmm. four o'clock in the morning. My wife comes in and says, I, I can't do this anymore. We got to go. I call that Kaiser. They had no beds. I called another Kaiser. They had no beds available. And it was one of those things where we originally took a hospital tour back before she was, you know, even that far along. I brought up, I said, what happens when you run out of beds? And I got laughed at. And at 430 in the morning. Now you're like, ah, (laughs) yes, we drove to a Kaiser we had never been to before on Sunset Boulevard near the Church of Scientology. Uh And uh, it was the best experience. It was the best decision I could have made. But then from that point, she was already in act, you know, she was already in labor labor for a good 12-ish hours, maybe. And we were at that Kaiser for three more days. So that Mm. by the time, or two more days, I'm sorry, there was a full day before the water Mm -hmm. break in. By that time that she that they made the decision to to bypass the natural childbirth plan, I had been pacing i i was so familiar with the with the hospital waiting room and at 4 30 and 5 30 in the morning there was no one there and i was exhausted and i hadn't slept in like three days and i remember trying to sleep on every surface in the hospital i was trying to sleep on tables and floors and and like on a chair that i didn't fit in there there was a maintenance guy that came by and gave me the weirdest look and i finally decided i was going to try to at least get some sleep in my car and as soon as i got down to my car they said, we need you up here. And they made mm. this, the decision to, to go in and do a C-section. And at that point, I guess I came off pretty frantic ah. that uh, <laughs> when I got down to the delivery room, the doula was in the scrubs, in the, in the outfit that, you know, I would have been wearing if I was to go in and cut the umbilical cord. And I remember I walked in and at that point it was like 530 in the morning. And I looked at her and I'm like, but you're, and she's all, yeah just looked at me it was like wow and i said no you that that's a good you're right you're right and so they left me in that waiting room whatever the recovery room by myself i there was no one else i was alone in this room full of like medical equipment and a printer that would randomly print out test results of something and just five or six recovery beds. And I was the only one in there for an hour and a half. Please tell me you laid down on one of those beds and went to sleep. No, no, no. At that point, I was so- You wake up, your wife's next to you in the recovery bed. You're like, hi, honey. I mean, that would have been great, but no, I was doing (laughs) jumping jacks. I was running back and forth. I was playing like games on my phone. I was doing everything to try to stay calm. But at that point, I had- I was at the crescendo of my anxiety and stress and being like, Oh my God, this is it. I'm going to be a dad. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to mess up this kid's life. Am I even going to stay? Am I going to do what my dad did and bail? Like all these things. And then the, <laughs> I remember the doctor came in and said, 
you got a pretty baby and gave me a high five. And I'm like, who are you? And all these random people were starting to come out of the room who I never met, shaking my hand and congratulating me and giving me high fives. And I'm just like, all right, where's my wife? Where's yeah. the kid? And I got a picture that they took uh, on the um in the delivery room. And then it, that's when it hit me when they brought the baby and put her in my arms. Mm. I was like, Oh, okay. No turning back. And it was something that just clicked in my head where I'm like, okay, I can be freaked out and stressed about this, but now it's my job to keep this thing alive. Mm -hmm. And that sort of knocked all of that other stuff to the side. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, it's the same, it's, it's, it's the same thought. It's just that it's a, I don't know how much of that is innate or innate for us versus, or if it's human nature, but I absolutely had that of like, this is, this is my new job. Like, I love my yeah. wife. I love my wife, but there's something about that kid that um, everyone else comes second. Right. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, you hear people saying, you know, you may not like kids, but the kids aren't like the one like your own. And I would yeah. always be like, no, I hate children. I just hate kids. I would mm -hmm. always be that way. I was this goth kid who just was this nihilistic view of the world who just hated everyone. And I would never be a dad and I can't be around kids because they're germ machines and I'm a sympathetic vomiter. So God forbid they puke in front of me. I don't want to puke on my kid's head while I'm trying to save her. So like all these things. And then I got her and I'm like, okay, I get it now. She's, she's like another arm. She's like, mm -hmm. she's like an appendage of mine that, I mean, you know, it's, it uh, directly connected to me in this way that I never understood before. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pivot this conversation because I realized you said you had it hard out at, uh, and you know, I talk a lot. Um, the world is a garbage fire, Kevin. Yes, it is. There's a lot of hate and anger and fear out there. Yes. And um, one of the things that I try very hard, very hard, I fail a lot at it is I try to remember to be kind mm. and that it is such a simple concept but it's also a commodity kindness nowadays. And I think social media plays a big part in that as well as uh, our current, um, the messaging that is coming down from the government and how it has disconnected a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I would go to the movies and I would see these ads like, the, you know, like three to five minute videos at the beginning talking about St. Jude and, and donate mm -hmm. to St. Jude's hospital. And I grew up on food stamps I was like wearing hand-me-down clothes that my mom would get tailored. So there'd be patches on these pants of mine that I would look like a hobo in school. And I got, you know, picked on a lot. And there was a lot of stuff that we did not have growing up that between that and the messaging that I would get about my father and all the chaos that would happen between my mother and grandmother, because neither one of them dealt with the trauma of the accident properly. I would see those videos and be like, well, that's great. But what about me? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I would, I would get mad. I would get yeah. angry. And, yeah. you know, these are kids who have cancer and stuff like this. And it would just completely bounce off my head and be like, just get to the movie already. And there's something about, I don't know, growing up and, and reflecting on that. And I guess understanding how trauma can affect a person, even if it didn't directly impact, like, even if I wasn't directly involved in the accident that happened. You know, I started to realize that that was a closed minded view. And especially nowadays with the the short, you know, kindness and short supply, the idea of of involving yourself in charity feels like 
um, you're take you're 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 taking you're completely taking ego out of the equation. Yeah, and trying to I guess I don't want to say give back, but spread some goodwill and hope where it's needed. And I wanted to talk to you about that because now I see this stuff and I don't know if it's mm. because I'm a dad now, mm. if it's because I now, I was saying this to Devin Sawa in our last episode that final destination has been on my mind a lot because now it's like, I see death and danger around every fucking corner. Now that yep. I have this kid. Yep. Look Everywhere. both ways. Look the both first, ways. Don't touch that. That's hot. The first time we drove in a car with her, I mm. was on pins. Like I was driving like 25 miles per hour and mm -hmm. a 40 mile per hour. Or I didn't want, you know, it's, I know how to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a, I want to know how you got involved in the charity work you've done and B what the heck is a big slick <laughs> and C you just finished a, a, like a golf, a celebrity golf thing. Yeah. Without this, this year was virtual. So big, first of all, big slick was started by Rob Riggle oh, and okay. it was, it was originally a poker tournament. So the big slick, I think is ace king in poker. I believe, or, or it's because pocket, pocket rockets is aces. So the big slick is a suited ace king when you're playing uh, Hold'em poker. And so originally they started this 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago as a charity uh, poker tournament. And then the gaming people got in, they got in trouble. They couldn't do that. So we, we started playing softball. Mm. And then at this point, they, this, is, this was their 10th year last year. And so they're raising money for Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Um, and it's now it's Riggle and it's Eric Stone Street and Jason Sudeikis and uh, Paul Rudd and I think and David Keckner are the five celebrity hosts. And then they Who are probably all dads that you're going to text and say, "Hey, go on my friend Aaron's absolutely. podcast." I will tell them they're all da uh, they're <laughs> all dads. Yes, I think they're all dads. That is uh, the Stone only Street's not a, Stone Street's not a dad. Um, you don't he's have the to only be a dad. You, you don't have to just, be that. He, he played have a, dad. a dad. He played yeah. a dad. Yeah. Uh, you could have, uh, you have the potential to be a father. Right. You um, could be a woman who had a dad and I would have there you, you go. on the show. I love it. Anyway, so that's their, that's their charity thing that I've been doing for about four or five years every summer. That's just a big party. It's like they get all their celebrity friends show up. We, we do karaoke all night and then we bowl and we play softball and raise money for the Children's Mercy Hospital. It's just a party. It's just fun. That's charity. Like how yeah, does that amazing. work? How does that work to raise the money? If it, it, well, if so people people pay to come to Kauffman Stadium to watch us play before a, oh. a, a Royals game. The Royals donate a certain amount of money that day. Uh, people pay to bowl with us for two rounds the Saturday morning. And then they have a big gala party where people pay for tickets. And then they have auction items like Paul Rudd auctioned off uh, a shield uh, Captain America shield oh, cool. signed by all the Avengers. But the key to all of these, any kind of any one of these tournaments is to have one or two or five stupid, not stupid, but crazy rich people, um, like stupid rich, meaning they have tons and tons of money, not that the fact that they're stupid and they're rich. So crazy rich I people. I wasn't judging. Who, who are, who are going to donate, you know, $2,500,000. That's how you get up to the big numbers. Um, but yeah, that's, they've been doing that. This is their 10th year. Patrick Warburton does a golf tournament in Palm Springs. This was his 10th year and they raised this last year, $3.3 million over Ooh. the weekend. Um, and his is a golf tournament. It's three days of golf, three nights of music. Um, and it's in Palm Springs. So the guy who runs that tournament, his name is Clark Rainey. Clark Rainey called me about two years ago and said, Hey, we want to do an East coast version of Patrick's tournament. We want you to be the namesake. 
And I was like, okay, so clearly you went through your Rolodex, you got to R. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the first person that's going to say yes. Um, but thank you. I would happily do that. Um, and so last year was year one. The goal was to raise $500,000, which would have been the most ever for a first year event for St. Jude. Uh, my That was his goal. My personal goal was none of my friends got arrested in Florida, that everybody got to go home. Um, and that's we a good raised, goal to have. No one got arrested as far as I know. Everybody went home on time and we raised $700,000. Wow. So this year the goal was to get to over a million. And obviously with COVID and 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 you know spikes in Florida during the time and just safety reasons, safety protocols, and, and you know, and also it's just not a good look for a St. Jude event to not to be, you know, not masked up and people all in a room together. Right. Um, we decided this year we did a virtual concert. So we did two nights of music that normally happens at the event. We just did it online and it was free online, but then we got we had some auction items. And then we had people donate some money and we ended up raising $511,000, I think. Wow. Year, which was, a, you know, anything over two or three was a coup. Um, yeah. So yeah, we were very proud of that number, but my involvement, my, my connection to St. Jude, first of all, my wife worked there when she was in college Okay. Right, right at the college. She was, it was in the research part when she was ready, getting ready to go to med school. And my personal connection is my very first TV job was a Wit Thomas production, which was, Tony Thomas, which is Danny Thomas's son. Right, right. So <laughs> Tony Thomas gave me my first series regular job that lasted a full four episodes. It was on NBC after Just Shoot Me. Um, and uh, it got canceled almost immediately. And it was the baby version of Arrested Development. It was oh, Mitch wow. Hurwitz. And uh, Mitch Hurwitz was the writer and uh, Jim Valley. And they were trying to, they hadn't, hadn't figured out what Arrested Development was yet. So Jeffrey Tambor played my dad, Joe Clayburgh played my mom. And, wow. And it was, it was crazy family. And I'm, I was the Jason Bateman in the middle. And then they realized they could get Jason Bateman. And so then they made Arrested Development sure. a couple of years later. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was my connection. So I got, I got, to, I went to a couple of events with them. I sat at their table and you watch that. You can't watch the videos as an adult, especially as a father and not feel something, you know, it's like, you know, Danny, Tony Thomas's whole thing was no child should die in the dawn of life, which is a pretty good mantra, right? They should give a shot. And it's interesting because my wife is a pediatric heart surgeon for kids. She operates on baby hearts and her whole thing was she operated on adults and got frustrated because she'd be like, okay, this is how you fix this problem. Don't eat so much meat, right, quit smoking, yeah. quit drinking. And they wouldn't do it. And she's like, well, I'm going to go operate on kids because it's not their fault. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then I actually got to go to the hospital. This is about five years ago. I went and played in a charity tournament, uh, one of the celebrity tournaments before the big golf tournament in, in, in Memphis and went to go tour the hospital. And that changed everything. Going to the actual place. Um, What's the interesting backstory for me is that uh, Danny Thomas, when he wanted to build, he knew he wanted to build a hospital. It's a great, it's a great story about how he was, he had kids and he was poor and he was trying to make it as an actor and a singer and a musician. And um, he couldn't get arrested in Hollywood. And he went to his local Catholic church and prayed to St. Jude and said, if you help me, I promise I will build something great in your name. And I can't remember if he knew it was a hospital yet, but um uh, and he did like a week later, he got a big job and he hit also needs famous Danny Thomas. And he went to his parish priest who had been in Memphis and he said, okay, I'm going to open a children's hospital in the name of St. Jude. Where should I do it? And he said, Memphis. And he was like, what are you, why Memphis? He goes, cause they need you. Memphis needs you. And he was, this is during segregation. Wow. Like, and he was, it was going to be free to everyone. 
It wasn't going to be a white hospital. It was going to be a hospital for everyone. And yeah. people thought he was crazy. And it's still there to this day. And it's obviously so much bigger than it was. Than it, they obviously, they've grown so much. But um, the idea of when you're in that hospital, it is joyful. And I hate hospitals. I had so much death in my family that my mom worked at a hospital. She was a nurse. I, I hated being around them. They just gave me, every yeah. time I was there, it was something bad. Um, the smell, I don't like the smell. Um, this place is is joy and hope. I mean, ima- imagine your daughter, they come to you and like, your daughter has leukemia. And the, my first thought is, let's save her. And the second thought is, how the fuck am I going to pay for this? Right, yeah. And they don't charge a dime for anything, for travel, for uh, the hospital, for everything at the hospital, for lodging, for food. It is all taken care of. You never receive a bill. And can you imagine the weight that would take off? Oh, absolutely. And I didn't know all that. Yeah, like not a dime. You know, parents, families do not pay for anything. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's my, it's, it, it started as this thing of like, I love golf. I love Clark. Let's do something good. Uh, so I love St. Jude's or St. Jude. Um, it's not St. Jude's. Uh, I get in trouble for that all the time. It's St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So anyway, um, I've been uh, schooled. Uh, but now the connection is more personal in the sense of the net. Once you've been there and once you see, when you're in that hospital, there is no color. There is no religion. There is, I mean, everyone is equal. Everyone is just there to make sure some kid is going to be okay. That's, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I get it. Um, I, I want to talk about one last thing. Mind Please. you, uh, I, I should have said this at the beginning. Uh, we are recording this before the election, so mm-hmm. we have no idea. Well, the ele- when is this going to drop? Like This the is week- dropping on Thursday. I feel like I feel like we have to have to do a record now because we're dropping something. Um, well, by the way, uh, by the way, we, I don't think we'll know on Thursday. So I don't either. I, I think it's going to be a while. So, but but I'm bringing that up because we're still in COVID. We're st- it's still pandemic. There's mm-hmm. there's there's talk on the news about uh, p- uh, spikes in the virus in different places. And your wife is a surgeon, mm-hmm. and I mean what. W- she still works, right? Now. Is she working every day? Every day. Are are you are you segregated from her at home? How does no, that work? No, she's not. Look, the reality is she's not frontline in the sense that she's not dealing with COVID patients, um, and the hospitals have heavy protocols. Um, so she's not around anyone who has it, or and and they have contact tracing at the hospital. So if anyone that she's worked with becomes is around anyone else that's infected, they contact trace and they let everyone know. Uh, we had one scare about. It. Two weeks ago, my daughter had a fever. And of course, the first thought is just COVID. Right. Yeah. Um, and then my wife started getting sick and then I started getting sick. And because, luckily, because my wife works at a hospital, that was, this was Sunday night, Monday morning, she got tested and we knew Monday night she was COVID free. And then just out of precaution, we had my daughter tested on Tuesday and she was COVID free. And I was seeing my doctor on Friday. So we decided there's no reason to get tested because if they have it, I have it. Yeah. Um, if they don't have it, I don't have it. Um, but it's, uh, it's been interesting. You know, we, it was heavy lockdown early. Sacramento has been, has not been hit hard. Luckily, I think partially because we're so close to San Francisco, which shut down so early, partially because it's a, a lot of medical people in this neighborhood, in this, in this, uh, in the community. And so people take it seriously. And mm-hmm. like we had our one quarantine family for the first two months that they're the only people we saw. Um, and then it's, it's opened up. We we've added people to the, to the group at this point. The, like the two, two of the girls my daughter's in kindergarten with, we had the first two weeks of kindergarten, they were at home on Zoom. 
and they uh, so we did a bubble with that those two families and we would switch houses which where they would you know zoom class together so they had a sense of being together because really yeah. they're learning not to poke their neighbor right <laughs> they're they're, it's, they're it's, learning how to deal with another human being in a small space it's something where my daughter doesn't know how to deal with another human being and i fear that i'm raising a that we're all possibly raising a generation of antisocial or awkward Kids well, I mean, because you, you, of that. Add, add, you know, add social media and Zoom to that. And, right. you know, yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to close this by, I don't know, asking how, how, how you're getting along. Like, how, how are you handling the parenting at home thing, especially uh, with, uh, with all of this? What's interesting is my wife and I, when we met, she, I, she lived in Louisiana, I lived in California. And so, and then for, a three years she was in Loma Linda and I was in LA, which is about an hour drive. And then we had one year in LA together. And then the rest of the time it's been either her here, me there, or both of us here, but I travel for work. And so our whole relationship is based on distance and like having time apart. Right. Right. So, <laughs> Cause I travel for work now. Like when I go to work, I have to get on a plane and go somewhere. And so the first two months, the first month was kind of like this weird mini vacation like, we, you know, you know, it was like yeah. this like staycation where we're just right. kind of in the house. It was kind of fun. And we did tasks and we cleaned out rooms and we, you know, rearranged things. And then like month two, it's like, oh, this is not going away. <laughs> um, the honeymoon is over. And then we made, uh, which was in the long term is going to be a great decision. But the, for the last two months has been a terrible decision was we decided to move during a pandemic. Um Oh God. And so we bought a different house and sold the old house. And, um, and it's, that's been, so we had our, oh, we had one really good fight about two weeks ago where, uh, I, I realized, oh shit, I'm the stay-at-home dad. Yeah. Because the, for the first, uh, for the first six years of my daughter's life, we had to live in nanny. We, oh, wow. we had to, cause I, I, it, my wife's on call and I go out of town. Someone has to be in the house, especially when she's little. Um, and we, our nanny left, right after we moved into the new house and she went back to LA and, and so I'm it. Like I, I make my daughter's lunch every night. I wake her up, get her ready for school. I feed her breakfast. I take her to school. I take her to gymnastics. I take her to what, you know, whatever I'm staying home. I'm buying groceries. I'm cooking dinner. I'm cleaning the house. It's like, and I did not sign up for that, that I do not want to do this. I do not like it. <laughs> yeah. I want to go work. And yeah. I, I want, I mean, I love the time with my family, but, I get it. We like, we got, she goes like, and she didn't, it dawned on her. She goes, I didn't realize. And I go, yeah, I didn't either. But I, and I'm doing it because it has to be done, but right. like, this is not what I want to do. There are people who enjoy that stuff. I don't, I don't yeah. like cleaning toilets. I don't, <laughs> I like making dinner once a week. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, the, the, uh, this week was the first time I've ever been alone in the house with my daughter overnight. My oh, wife, really? my wife's birthday, um, she said the one thing I would love to do is to spend a night away so I can just have a break and a night to myself and to recharge. And what am I supposed to say? No, I'm like, it's your birthday. And you have, a, you, you get a lot of, um, my daughter is two and oh, wow. she's, her molars are coming in oh, wow. and she's learning the power of no. Oh, um, and, I remember and, those days. and the power of throwing herself on the floor, not uh -huh. knowing if she's going to smack her head Tantrums. on anything. Love so it. like, and she also doesn't like going to sleep. And I think she might be afraid of the dark. Um, Did you get sleep train? Yes, but it's been two steps forward, one step yeah, back. That's normal. And uh, I've never been here by myself the whole night. And every time I put her down to bed, it's been a different situation. 
because I guess I have a different energy than my wife. A little bit, I'm, maybe? I'm a little more relaxed and more like, okay. And uh, I need to be more firm with the rules, but uh, it turned out she slept almost all the night and I was awake the entire night because every little noise set me off like, oh right? God, oh God. And so I probably slept like two hours and got up at 6 a.m., but it was one of those things where going in it, I would I didn't sign up for that. I I really did have this thought in my head of like, I'm gonna do this and she's gonna do this. But now that especially during this lockdown, you yeah, know, all bets are off. She doesn't have much work coming in. I don't have much work coming in. She's auditioning for different, you know, audiobooks and commercials and stuff because we have an audio booth in our uh, living room. And so we're trying to do it in shifts. But sometimes you got to improvise and, you yeah. know, she needed time away. And what am I supposed to say? I go you say see, yes. You know, you say I, yes. I go for drives. I go, you know, help my mom. Like I leave when I can. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where, of course, I say yes. If I said no, that would be a lack of equality in the household. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin, I feel like I can talk with you forever, but I know that you need to go. And also I need to go because there's a nap that's going to be ending <sighs> fairly soon and i still have some kind of work to do but mm -hmm. i want like i was going to talk to you about clay crawford and his his charities that he's doing Pig and, out picnic yeah and one i want to get him on the shit like he was so cool to hang out with you and him were uh sort of the first real examples i got of hey maybe i should get back into acting because not everyone in this city is bad i had such a jaded perspective on the industry when I stopped acting in like 2009 but then I still got little bits here and there so I want to thank you guys because you show me that not everyone here is just 100% focused on the last thing that they appeared in or who they know uh -uh. or you know what they're wearing or none of whatever. that matters anymore no it none doesn't matter no it doesn't and doesn't um, so thank you for throwing a little bit of kindness into the world and i oh, do thank you man i do really appreciate the work that you're doing before um, you go i will tell you the best advice that i was given give it to me a new dad right and i can't remember where, if it was a person told me this or if i read it in some book or something but the idea and this is the, my mantra every time i'm every time i start to lose it or i start to freak out the mantra is um is you are just shepherding this human until they don't need your help anymore so it's, so it's stop thinking. I stop. I just try to stop thinking of the role of father or the role of adult child. It's like this is a human being that I'm trying to give as much information as possible so that they can live a healthy, good life. And that I'm just shepherding them through this phase where they can't wipe their butt and they can't. They have to make sure yeah. someone get there to brush their teeth and they need someone to wash their clothes and they need someone to drive them places. Right. But so there's so it's 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 so I it's usually in the moments where I. Cause I was the guy who always said, I'm never going to say, because I said, so that is my <laughs> favorite line. I say it all the time. Oh, because I, you don't need to know why, because I said so, because I'm your dad. Right. And I have to myself, it's like, okay. Um, it's, I, I just, because just cause I don't want to explain it right now. Doesn't mean that it's not important for her to know. Yeah. And so, and that, that I was, I always remember being very frustrated as a kid because no one told me why I, I, yeah. I was very curious and wanted to know why and wanted good and good and good Intel on why. So I could argue against it. Um, but just con I constantly have to bring myself back to that that idea that in 10 years or 15 years, she's going to be a little adult. Yeah. And and so I'm just trying to give her the space and and the love and the support for her to become whatever that is that she'll become.
That is good that advice. That becomes my mantra. That's the thing I try to go back to. I've been uh, given a lot of bad advice <laughs> regarding. Well, don't do math. Don't, don't do math. Don't do math. Don't do hell's angel porn. No, Kevin. I, I how- feel like you're already winning. <laughs> Where can people find you online if you want to? Uh, I am at Kevin Rom on Twitter, at Kevin P. Rom on uh, Instagram. Awesome. Well, we're reaching that point in the episode where I have to say thank you all for listening. Grab that beer cozy and give it a kiss. This trip into the dadward spiral has come to an end, and I appreciate everyone for tuning in listening. I appreciate you, Kevin. Thank you. On so many levels. But thank you for joining me. Uh, hugs and kisses to Dragon Wagon Radio. Again, I'm Aaron Flux on Twitter. I'm Aaron W. Pruner on all the other channels. I don't TikTok and I don't Snapchat and I don't nope. Twitch. Nope. Um, you can find Dadward Spiral at Dadward Spiral on Twitter. I just started that profile. DadwardSpiral.com is the website that goes with this, and I'm still trying to update that. You can also find the this episode and others at DragonWagonRadio.com on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, I don't All know, the, 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 your mom's refrigerator. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> everyone, thank you for tuning in. And I don't know, I guess to quote Bill and Ted, be excellent to one another. Nice. Thanks, Kevin. My pleasure. Thank you, man. James Baldwin once wrote, I am what time, circumstance, history have made of me, certainly but I am also much more than that. And that's really why I wanted to start Black on Black. My name is Julian Michael. I'm a comedian. I'm a writer. I'm an educator. I do a lot of things, but really, Black on Black isn't about me. It's about sharing stories of all kinds of people from across the diaspora. And I hope that when you listen, you'll learn something, you'll enjoy, and you'll start a conversation. Check out Black on Black, right here on Dragon Wagon Radio. It's Dragon Wagon.